Welcome to Meadowbrook Church, loving Jesus by loving people. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. We are so excited to have Ed Heinrichs here with us. Um, If you guys have any questions for him after the service, we have a table set outside for Camp Crossroads. Um, So if you have any questions or you want to take a brochure or just hang out with him, he'll be out there after the service just in the lobby. Um, Ed and his wife Cheryl have two kids, Joshua and Nicole. Um, Ed is the camp director or the executive director at Camp Crossroads. Um, He has worked as a teacher, as a pastor, and as a spiritual life director um, at a high school. Um, And he's been at Camp Crossroads since 2013. So we're so excited to have him with us. And will you join me in welcoming him this morning? It really is a privilege to be with you this morning. I have the opportunity to visit a number of churches across Ontario. And I have to say, uh, coming to Leamington is one of my favorites. And I'm not schmoozing you when I say that. Cheryl and I spent uh, six months working in this church back in 1987. And it was transformative, that experience for us. It really has a lot of great memories. Robbie Duplin was the size of your kid. I had one of those deja vu men. That's not Robbie, that's his kid. It was just like, wow, I was taken back to 1987. Actually, Cheryl babysat you for a couple of months when we lived here, so we knew you when. But it's just a real privilege to be with with you this morning, and I wanna thank the worship team. to sense their heart when we prayed together before the service. They're up here leading, bringing the gifts they have, but their desire was to bless you and to see you encouraged. So thank you so much for, for bringing that heart to what you do in, the, in this place. It's, it's appreciated and I'm, I'm encouraged. So thank you for the opportunity to, to be here this morning. Um, I'm gonna just walk you through quickly kind of some of the things. Have you been to camp before? Hands up. Great, if you haven't, we've got space for you. I say that recognizing that right now the junior high group is on retreat, but not at crossroads. That's a problem. We were full. The information came in too late, so they went to another camp, which is great, but we want them back, so next year, hopefully they're at crossroads for their junior high retreat. So just to share a little bit of the vision, and that's what this is about. I'm not the guy doing the infomercial. It's to share the vision of what God is doing I say this over and over again. I make a point of saying it multiple times a week, if not every day, because as someone has said, vision leaks. And it's easy to drift. Drift takes no energy. Drift is simply letting gravity do its work. And if we're gonna pursue vision, we need to remind ourselves of what we're about. And so that's part of what this morning is about. We exist as a Christ-centered ministry. Culture is adrift. It's a quagmire that we're into. And we need to know who we are centered on, who we are anchored to, and it's Jesus Christ. So no matter what happens in culture, we want to stay true to this, and we want to be held accountable to that. That we're a ministry that supports the local church, and it's through declaring the message of who Jesus is. So Christ-centered ministry, supporting the local church, doing two very specific things, making disciples and developing leaders. We make disciples because that's what Jesus told us to do. Matthew 28, he's about to leave, and he makes this clear, definitive declaration of what the mission is. He says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and 
There it is. That's your mission. That's my mission. We want to stay true to that. And there's a way in which we do that. We want to be making disciples. And we want to also, one of the privileges we have is about uh, 50 young people will come to camp this summer on staff. And we will invest in them to develop them as leaders. So that's the privilege we have of supporting Meadowbrook Church in Muskoka. Great place to be, by the way. In the summer, come up for a family camp, plug in, relax, enjoy. You're coming back this summer, right? It's a done deal. So it's a great place to be, a fun kind of a setting, and there are great stories of lives being transformed that come out of, out of that context. Obviously, it's about fun, and that's part of the recipe. I wish you could uh, zoom in on the face of that little girl who's about to go flipping into the water. It's a lot of fun to see people just enjoying the beauty of that 350 acres and, and that beautiful setting of, of Muskoka. It's really a lot about the fun. It's also about friendships and relationships. If I'm not mistaken, there may be people present here who met their spouse. Anyone at Camp Crossroads? If not, we've got a lot of relationships out there that were a result of that twinkle in the eye that happened on a starry night when the <laughs> birds were singing and suddenly hearts were fluttering and all the rest. So it's about really, we're not just about dating service, but <laughs> it happens. And I keep saying we want a commission on what they think their relationship is now worth. But it is, it's definitely about friendships and that's part of the recipe. And ultimately it's about faith. All the other stuff is to create an atmosphere where people are open to hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, the, the good food, all the rest of it, that's part of what it's about. So did some quick math, 47,000 campers, not individuals, but people that have returned over the course of, of time in the 38 years now, 8,000 significant spiritual decisions. And I can say that because we care enough to track. If you don't measure, you're not going to do it. So that's why we do it. To know that decisions to be baptized, decisions to follow Jesus, first-time commitments are happening in that place. And so we're excited to be able to say that we're supporting you in the mission that Meadowbrook and that you as individuals are on as you seek to see the kingdom of God developed and grow. So we had 600 campers in our programs last January, February. If you ever wonder, what do you guys do in the winter? We do the thing. <laughs> we are about Christ-centered, support the local church, make disciples, develop leaders. We're on target to hit 700 this. That's why we didn't have room for Meadowbrook Junior High. We're packed out. This weekend, there's a bunch of hormones with feet running around. <laughs> a lot of energy, a lot of enthusiasm. And we've got staff there that are trying to herd them in the right direction. And their lives could be impacted. Their lives could be impacted for eternity as a result of being there. So it's really a lot of fun to do that. We develop leaders, as I say. We invest in them. We provide opportunities. Quick story, just to maybe inspire you to say, consider being part of it. Businessman from the Niagara area had a week and he said, what can I do? Well, here's some of the options. Oh, I can drive boat. So he came up to drive boat for the week, dragging kids around the lake, just having fun, you know, sunshine, beautiful setting, all the rest of it. And uh, it was an investment in the lives of those young people. And at, on the Saturday after the buses left, he came over to me and I could see that he was emotionally impacted by this. He said, I just got on the bus to say goodbye to the kids. And he got on one bus that came from Welland, where some of our Rose City kids come from. It's a partnership with Southridge Church where they pack a bunch of kids into a bus, pay for them to come up to camp. And some of them come from really desperately needy home situations. Like I'm talking about the poorest part of, of the city of, of Welland, right? And uh, the one young girl looked up at him as he was walking down the aisle on the bus and said, I have never felt loved before in my life. 11 years old, 
And this was the first time she felt loved. And that's part of the recipe. We have volunteers in the kitchen making food with love. We have boat drivers driving the boats, wanting to invest in the kids as a way of showing love to them. We have cabin leaders telling them stories, walking alongside them, letting them know that God loves them. And there was a seed planted. I remember grade three, I think it was, we did this science experiment where you take a bean, put it in a paper towel and pour water on it, and over time, suddenly it bursts in there, this little sprout. That, and for me, that was a picture of what happened that week. There was a seed there, and I pray and hope that that young lady will come to know Jesus, and that one day you and I might bump into her in eternity. And she'd be it started for me when I went up to camp, and somebody showed me that I'm worthy of love because God loves me. Could you be a part of something like that? Could you invest a week in something like that? It's life transforming, and the stories are many. I have the privilege of reading them. Last year, over 240 significant spiritual decisions like that. Really, really exciting kind of stuff. So we want to be a part of that. A couple of uh, just statements, one-liners, if you will. I'll reduce how much I, I share even here, but we've got so many stories, and as I read the applications for people that want to come and serve on staff, I'm realizing that the impact of camp is lasting. And uh, they just want to come back and share Jesus with the campers that are there, there this year. Um, Kalina, one of the girls in the picture on the upper right there last uh, fall, was baptized at Waterloo MB Church in, in Waterloo. Just a powerful story of God getting a hold of, of her life. And now she wants to invest in other people. She says, last summer, my relationship with the Lord became so much stronger. And I would love to return this summer to continue to grow in my relationship with the Lord and to spread his love to others. There's something powerful that happens in us as we actually participate in the mission. It's not just about giving, it's about getting. And something happens when we partner with God in the mission that he's, he's on. Uh, Joshua Jansen, up upper left there, says, God has given me a heart for children's ministry, and I believe camp is an amazing place for me to serve where I can use the gifts that God has given me to teach kids about Jesus. He's one of those cool kids, very athletic, but he wants to use that to actually invest in the next generation. So you could be a part of that as well. So pray for us as we... Christ-centered, support the local church, make disciples, and invest in young leaders to see their lives transformed and them focusing their energy on seeing the mission of God move forward. So there's a place for you at Camp Crossroads if you want to serve. And uh, just an added piece, camp was started in that location in the year 2000, so it's 38 years old. At about 38 years old, physically, you start feeling aches and pains, Jake, you remember when you were 38 all those years ago? Stuff started, that's kind of where camp is at. It's middle-aged, it needs help. <laughs> uh, the buildings, so we are running a capital campaign. There's a chance to invest. Guaranteed it's better than Bitcoin. <laughs> the value will remain. It's up and to the right, into eternity, whatever investment you make in that place. We want to be diligent using the resources to advance the kingdom of God, which has eternal results because lives are changed. It's because God is faithful to his promise. He who begins a good work will complete it. And one day we will see the fruit of that. And so just an invitation to invest, to pray for, take one of the cards, put it on your fridge. If you frequent the fridge, if you don't, put it somewhere where you do go often as a reminder to pray and ask God if he wants you to be a part of it in some way. Um, really, really encouraging stuff happening, and we'd love for you to be there. It's a great place to spend some, some time in the summer. So uh, 
I do listen to the messages of the church that, churches that I'm visiting. I really appreciated the, um, the message that Mesh had last week, and so I want to kind of build on that. Uh, when I talked to Chris and Demesh, it was kind of like, yeah, it's, it's a one-off. It's not a series that you're in. I know you're going into a new series, but I don't want to be the guy who parachutes in and just kind of says some stuff and that, then leaves. And I was encouraged to, to hear that message. So we're kind of building a little bit on, on what Mesh talked about last week. And we're going to be looking together at Colossians chapter 1, page 1183 in the, the pew Bibles in front of you. I would encourage you to, to track along because we're going to bounce off the last couple of verses back into the earlier part of the text as well. So um, here's a question for you, just to put you on the spot. Simple quiz. What one thing, okay, one thing are the following known for? And you can answer out loud. That's cool. I'd encourage that, actually. KFC. Uh-huh. Still, right? Google. Knowledge. Knowledge. Information. Answers to questions. Yes. Ford. Broken down. Broken down. I knew there was one in the crowd. I just let my 96 F-150 4x4 short box pickup truck go a few weeks ago. It's still a 96. It was a... Anyway, I'm over it. I'm over it. Ikea. Yeah, flat pack furniture, cheap furniture, whatever. The church. A little less enthusiasm, a little longer in the answer. It's so easy for us to lose the focus. I repeat our mission to myself and to our staff regularly for a reason. We can be about a thousand things and miss the main thing. Am I right? And it's when we miss the main thing that we start nattering and chattering and bickering and then we end up fighting. Do you understand what I'm saying? So what is the one thing? Let's keep it. He is the one. It's not a what. It's not a how. It's a who. And that's Jesus. He is the one. So that's the big idea this morning. Jesus. It's about Jesus. And so let's look together at how Paul, in his letter to the Colossians here, gives the definitive answer to what we ought to be about. Uh, See, there are so many organizations that, if we're honest, do a better job than the church would. Disney does a better job of entertaining kids and families than Camp Crossroads does, but they don't offer Jesus, right? Movies will entertain people better than a Sunday morning sermon, but you're not gonna find Jesus there. So we need to be about what we're about in the best way that we can. So let's, let's continue to do, that, to do that. So looking at the idea of being on mission, as Pastor Mesh spoke last week, uh, he talked about uh, developing the model of how to be on, on mission to g- going fishing. Very practical message, by the way. If you didn't hear it or if you forgot it, go back and visit the website. It's worth looking at. So in the face of all these seismic shifts that are going on, he talked about how we need to be patient, to have courage, humility, faith, and diligence in fishing. And I was encouraged as, as I heard that. Um, th- so there's a question related to last week's message I've given you enough of a summary now if you weren't here. All of that aside, why do fish bite? Who said that? Brilliant. Because they're hungry. I have had boats in my life that had fish finders on them. What a frustrating piece of technology. (laughs) You look at the screen, there's the fish. There's bunches of them. The thing's chirping and beeping and alarms are going off and I'm, I'm doing everything in my power, everything in my tackle box, and they're just looking at me. They're not hungry. 
We can go fishing, but the fish need to be hungry if they're going to bite. You know that fishing lures is a multi-billion dollar a year industry? It's big business, but if the fish aren't biting, you're fishing, you're not catching. And so if we're on mission, what is it going to require for the fish? And I want to be respectful in using this analogy because it does break down. But what does it take for the fish to go after what we're offering? They need to be hungry. So here's a question. Are people in the world around us hungry? Let's, let's unpack that a little bit. Let's think about that. So again, Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, uh, verse 28 and 29, page 1183 in your Bibles in front of you, where Paul says this, we proclaim him, and that is Jesus. He is the one we proclaim, some translations say. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end, I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. And so Paul is making a very clear statement of the one that we're about But how does this relate to the needs of the people that you and I are brushing up against in the regular routines of life? The people that we do business with, our customers, our suppliers, the ones that we have coffee breaks with at at work, in in whatever form, at school, in uh, Tim, apparently you're getting a Starbucks in, in Leamington. So Timmy's or Starbucks or wherever you're bumping into these people, How can we engage them in in this conversation? Well, I'm convinced, and this is not original with me, I'm borrowing from a few people that do Christian apologetics. There are four questions that people are longing to find the answer to, and tell me if, if this resonates, if you think this is true or not. These are the four questions. Who am I? People want to know the answer to that. Who am I? They want to know, why am I here? Does my life have meaning? Is there a purpose for me here? They want to know the answer to the question, what is wrong with this world and how can we fix it? Because there's a lot of empirical evidence to tell you that there's something wrong with this world. And they want to know, where am I going? Attend any funeral, any given day, and that question suddenly faces all of us. So those four questions. And that's where people are hungry. That's where they're looking to be fed. That's where they're willing to engage around those kinds of questions. And so how do we provide the answer to that? Well, Paul says he is the one we proclaim. So how does Jesus answer those questions for us? How is he the one that we can bring to people in need that are hungry at that point? Well, Jesus consistently used questions to engage people. Read the Gospels, and you see that when someone comes to Jesus with a question, he very quickly turns it around as a question back to them. Why is he doing that? Well, so that they begin to look into their own lives and ask the deeper level questions. He wants to take them on that journey to discover where their need actually lies, and then he provides the answer for them. So I think there's a place for us to engage people in conversations around these big questions. So the first one that that I mentioned is the the who am I question. Who am I? What's my identity? Well, Paul brings some answers to that. So I'm going to encourage you this week. Chances are, unless you're a hermit, you're going to bump into some people this week and probably have conversations. How about initiating a conversation where the person is challenged to face this question. Who are you? Like really, who are you? 
it'll be helpful for them to begin to recognize they have a hunger, a desire to know the answer to that question. And God willing, you'll be able to go there with them. I'm amazed at some of the conversations I've been able to have just simply by initiating another level type question. Just taking it the next level in terms of the questions that we're asking people that we're interacting with. So Paul says here in verse 15 of Colossians chapter 1, he says, in talking about Christ, again, he is the one we proclaim. He says, he is the image, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And then he goes on to talk about the supremacy of Christ in the church. And so here we find the answer to the question of who am I? It's found in our origins in Christ. So if we have a materialistic worldview, we don't have a satisfying answer to that question. If I tell you, or let's pick on these kids that were sitting in the front bench here, if we tell them you are the product of a biological process, random chance causes you to be here, that creates a void in their life that will leave them struggling to find meaning and purpose in their existence. And that's the best a materialistic worldview can offer people. That's the best that our educational system is offering people. You're an accident. The universe is an accident. Chaos, chance, it's the best. I I have a bit of a hobby. I I watch conversations between uh, a guy named Richard Dawkins, brilliant person, biologist, materialist, right? If he had any faith, he has rejected that. Watch conversations between him and people of faith who are intelligent enough to engage him. I could never aspire to that, but it's fascinating to watch. And one thing you find out very quickly is, is even an intelligent person like Stephen Hawking or Richard Dawkins can't answer the question of where do we come from. You can only go so far back, and then they make this huge leap of faith. And I've heard the quote, something came from nothing. And if we're telling our kids that they came from nothing, that's really sending the message your life isn't worth anything. Something coming from nothing means it's not worth anything. And it's all chance. And we're into that nihilistic kind of a space. We have abandoned the moral foundations. We've abandoned any form of foundations. And we're going to reap a whirlwind. We really are. And to be able to come into that conversation and to be able to say, in answer to the question, who am I? I'm loved. I'm designed on purpose by a loving God, an eternal, unchanging God. That changes the whole conversation. So that when I look in the mirror, I'm not just a mass of trillions of cells that happen to be firing off randomly, but there's a God of the universe that looks at me and he sees someone lovable. I had an interesting conversation with Tara in the, uh, in the coffee shop. She was making some delicious espresso there. That's a pretty nice place to be. But she was saying that uh, we ended up talking about psychology and the psychology of money, and then we went on to mirrors. And she said, if you hold up a mirror for a kid, they'll act differently 
as a result of seeing themselves. In other words, specifically, she said at Halloween, if a kid sees themselves in the mirror, they'll only grab one candy. So it's pretty powerful psychology. So these deeper questions of identity really do make a difference. And we have been telling the younger generation they can be anything and do anything. Am I right? That's the message. I didn't hear that. I got one of these and told to go out and do some work in the yard. Now we're telling kids they can be anything, do anything. Everybody's a winner and everybody wins at the end in a moral vacuum with no grounding for who we are and why we exist. We're bringing an answer to say you are designed, intentionally created by God for a purpose. That's the hunger that people have. That's the hunger. Who am I? I had a fun experience with my, uh, with my younger brother. He's got two Harleys, so he called me up and he said, they're both in one, one's in Western New York, more information than you need. Anyway, he said, I've got two Harleys, you take one, I'll take the other one, let's go for a ride. Beautiful October afternoon. And he says, okay, let's go. And he, he, he disappeared for a couple of minutes. He came out with the full swag. Harley boots, Harley belt, Harley shirt, Harley vest, Harley helmet. It's kind of a transformation of his identity. And that's what Harley driver, riders do. Right? It's kind of part of the identity thing. So I, who am I? I'm just a putz, right? So he's, well, if you're going to ride my Harley, you've got to wear this. So he gave me a vest so at least I could fit in, right? And, and to me, it just kind of became, an, I enjoyed it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. But it kind of became an illustration that we do try to find our identity in a number of different things that will pass. And here we can answer the question of who am I definitively for eternity that in Christ we are loved. We belong. We are part of the family of God. People are hungry for that answer. So, Wednesday afternoon, coffee break or lunchtime, throw it out there. Ask the question, so who are you really? It's one of your co-workers or someone that you bump into. It might lead you into a deeper conversation that's worth having. So, who am I? Another question is, why am I here? Why am I here? We uh, live in a world that is struggling to find meaning and purpose. Uh, I'm, I'm astounded. I'm astounded by how much anxiety there is in the younger generation. For whatever reason, I've spent a lot of my time working with young people, but there has been a significant shift in, in the well-being, can I say mental health, of young people. Anxiety, just longing for, for something substantial. See, I, I was a bit of a rebel in my teen years, and the difference between then and now is I knew I was pushing a wall. I was pushing, a, and I did it partly to know that it was solid. And what we've done is removed the wall, and now there's no sense of anything solid. And we're adrift. We're drifting. And so there's this longing to know that my life has meaning, that my identity has meaning, and that there's a purpose to my life. And so how is Jesus the answer to the, the question, why am I here? Uh, a guy named David Thoreau said, the mass of men or people lead lives of quiet desperation, and I think that is true. We spend a lot of time doing a lot of stuff, and at the end of it, it's vapors. It's vapors. Um, just a startling, startling uh, piece of information. One of our family speakers last year quoted, um, he said that the average, I'm going to say American, because then we can judge them, right? <laughs> the average American, they're, they're big target, easy to hit. The average American spends 72 hours a blank watching Netflix. Guess. 
Pardon me? No, it's in a period of time. I wish. Two weeks. 72 hours every two weeks watching Netflix. That's the average. Two weeks. You know how long it takes to read through your Bible in one sitting? I've never done it in 72 hours. Just kind of reading through it, 72 hours. Isn't it interesting? We fill our time with so many things that I got to admit, I watch some Netflix every once in a while, so I'm not judging lest I be judged. But 72 hours every two weeks, really? We're looking for something to fill our days. And we want deeply to have meaning in what we're doing. Watch the people coming out of work that don't find that there. It's like this, right? To have an answer to the question, why am I here, is so life-giving. And it really doesn't matter the context. I'm not saying y'all should be pastors. Lord, please spare us from that. We need pastors, but we don't all need to be pastors. Do you understand what I'm saying? In your workplace, there's a need for salt and light to be present. Bring meaning, bring purpose into, and even engage them. People are hungry for it, go there. So why are you here? Might be a good question to get a conversation going. And they're gonna be like, what do you mean? Not, no, I don't mean here necessarily at work or at school or in the coffee shop, but why do you think you're on planet Earth? And suddenly it's game on. Very few people you'll find have a good answer to that question. And in asking the question, you may actually provoke them to think just a little bit differently about their lives. And who knows, but you might be able to introduce Jesus into the. So I'm talking about going fishing with bait that they're actually hungry for. Do you understand what I'm saying? Why am I here? Who am I? These are the answers found in Jesus. Look at verse 10. We, we've, we've touched on the last part of the chapter. Now we're going back again. Look at verse 10 where Paul says, and we pray this in order, and he's been talking, uh, praying that they would be filled with spiritual wisdom and understanding, and he says, and we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Little kids want to please. It's hardwired into us. You hear them say, look at me, look at me, when they do something. In fact, even if they're being potty trained, they want to show you. Because they want affirmation. That's the way we're wired. People will look for affirmation often in the wrong place. But here, Paul is reminding us that in Christ, our lives have meaning and purpose, and that we can bear fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. So our lives can have meaning, not just for now, but forever. The fruit that he's talking about will last forever so that our actions actually become acts of worship. That's our act of worship is to live as living sacrifices. Every human being that has ever walked on the face of the planet was designed to be in relationship with God and living for God. And any other pursuit will miss the mark and leave us empty. And so here now we bring the answer to the question of why am I here? We are here to grow in the knowledge of God and to bear fruit in what we do, fruit that will last. And that takes, and we don't have time to unpack that, but that will take many different forms, including finding community and relationship that is meaningful and lasting, that is actually eternal. That will survive into eternity is the relationships that we build with 
God first and with each other second. That lasts. And so to invest in that actually does bear fruit that will last for eternity. Growing in the knowledge of God. And it's in his power that this happens. He says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. So that's a completely different picture of what, from what David Thoreau says of people living in quiet desperation. Now Paul says that we can live according to his glorious might with great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father. What a, which life do you want? The quiet desperation or the joyfully giving thanks in the glorious power of God day by day? It's Sunday, but Monday's coming. What a way to start Monday and start the week in glorious praise to God and great patience and endurance, even when difficulties come. And that's why James is able to say, count it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Because in the midst of that, God is working to his glory. So there's meaning to our existence, even in the struggle, even in the struggle, to be able to find meaning in our lives. So to ask somebody at work, What's the purpose of your life? Why are you here? Not just who are you, but why are you here? Do you think that might be an interesting conversation? It might just be a challenging conversation for you and for them. But that's maybe where some of that fruit will start to show up in our lives as well. And then allow us to point them to Christ as we simply share how we have found meaning and purpose, even in the difficult things of life. We're not promising them everything's going to go well, but we are promising them that we can find meaning and purpose even in the struggle. That's the gospel. That's the gospel we can share, and people are hungry to know who am I, why am I here. There are other questions that people are longing to know the answer to, and that is, what's wrong with this world, and how can the wrong be made right? It's not Donald Trump. It wouldn't have been Hillary Clinton either. I'm not picking sides here. We're not going to find the solutions and all the usual, usual answers because we, we've tried that and it didn't work. So how can we understand what is wrong with this world and how can it be made right? Well, let's look at verse 14. Um, actually, we'll, we'll start at verse uh, 13 because Paul starts to... to contrast there, the kingdom of light that we're invited to live into. And he says, for he, that's Jesus, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created, things in heaven things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. And then he goes on to say in verse 21, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So there's the answer to the question of what's wrong with this world and how can it be made right? Simply said, what's wrong with this world is that we're separated from God by our sin. We make sinful choices. You want proof? Why can a grade three teacher not say to her or his class, 
okay, kids, I'm going to step out to make some photocopies. You're on your own. What happens as soon as that teacher leaves the door, leaves the room? What happens in that classroom? Chaos. Chaos. It's human nature to move from order into chaos unless somebody's watching. And sometimes a grade three teacher would say, okay, I'm leaving the room and pick on that one kid. You're in charge. Tell me if anything happens. Some of you were that kid. <laughs> but you know what I mean? There, there's, there's just this propensity towards chaos because we are separated from the one who designed and created us. That's what's wrong with this world. It's not a lack of education. Sure, that's part of it. It's not a lack of food. It's not any of those things. I mean, obviously, those are some part of the problem in some places more specifically than others. But the big problem is that we are disconnected from God because we've rebelled against him and we've wanted to go our own way. And now we're reaping a whirlwind. And I fear for what that's going to look like in the next few years because we have cast off restraint. And when that happens, people perish. A culture dies. We've seen it, and we haven't learned the lesson. If we aren't raising kids to know who they are in relation to God, it's a moral vacuum. There's no hope left. There's no hope left. And so we can bring the answer that people are looking for. I know what's wrong with this world. People are broken and need to be fixed, and Jesus can do that. He is able to do that. People are broken. And I'm amazed at how these intelligent people will sit there and say that we are evolving and getting better. Turn on the news. How do we get to the place where people will drive a loaded ambulance into a marketplace? How do we get to a place where somebody will drive a truck into a crowded street? How do we get here? It's because we've abandoned. We've abandoned our maker. We've abandoned an understanding of the fact that we are created by God. And so the answer is to return to relationship with him. People are hungry to know that. I've been to funerals where there's no hope and there's quite a contrast between knowing where you're going and wondering, especially when you reach that point in life. So the other question that people raise is, where am I going? There's a funeral here Yesterday, Mrs. Dirksen, I uh, got to know her back in 87 and her husband, David, as well. Where's she today? Like right now. Right. Can we say that with the full assurance of faith? Absolutely. Absolutely. A life lived for Jesus, an eternity spent with, and reunited with a whole bunch of people that they ministered to and with. That changes everything, being able to say that. I may have told this story here before, but I'll never forget going to the flat track motorcycle race track in Welland. It was a Tuesday evening, cheap night, because I'm Mennonite background. But anyway, <laughs> I'm getting over it. Um, flat track racetrack, a bunch of guys zipping around. The, and every once in a while, probably happened four or five times over the course of the evening, the announcers would come on and say, oh, just a reminder that John... and." I I think that was the right name. And I don't want to judge anyone in sharing this story, but it just left me feeling saddened. said, John's funeral is coming up in two days. Please bring feathers to the funeral for his angel's wings. And I just felt like, is that the only hope that we can really offer people when there's that much pain? That if bringing a feather will somehow turn, well, 
None of us will ever actually be angels. That's not true theology anyway. But what is the hope that we can offer to people that are maybe facing some of the most difficult circumstances and that is imminent? And guess what? 100% of the people die. Being human is fatal in that sense, right? It's terminal. But on the other hand, uh, my dad's 84. He's faced some really deep... uh, challenges apart from being 84 he's had some significant health challenges and it's so encouraging to to talk with him and he says i'm ready i'm ready i'm actually asking god to take me i'm ready he's looking forward to it to be able to offer that to people that wonder what comes after or make up kind of this stuff that really doesn't answer the need like what a privilege for us to say he's the one Jesus can reunite us with the Father and we can actually spend eternity with him and with each other. It's an invitation into an eternal community. It's an invitation to find identity. It's an invitation to find meaning and purpose. It's an invitation to find the answers to the problems in this world and hope for the next. Do you want to share that with people? If I showed you a picture of a kid who was starving and you had food available, would you share it? We do. We have what they need. They're hungry and we have what they need. So I want you to think about this coming week. What does that look like for you? How can you bring what they're hungry for? And it might be simply a matter of being willing to go there with a question that is non-threatening. I'm not talking about you bringing your old KGV Bible and thumping a few people until they repent and turn to Jesus. I'm talking about in... Let's look at what Paul says here. He says... We proclaim him. Do you know what proclaiming is? What what would proclaiming look like? It's a pretty bold kind of statement, right? It's kind of like the billboard, the clear announcement. It's like, Jesus, Jesus, like just declaring that proclaim. We proclaim him. Not us, not Meadowbrook, not some program. It's Jesus that we're offering. All the other stuff is simply to proclaim him. We proclaim him, admonishing, sometimes being willing to go there in conversation, because admonishment is one of those conversations where we have some intense fellowship. I sometimes need my wife Cheryl to admonish me and to recognize that I've got some stuff to work on. And And I think the questioning is a way that we can actually admonish people in their faulty thinking in a way that's helpful, so they don't feel beat up on. And admonishing and teaching. We've got something to bring. We've got truth to bring. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We can teach them about him. He is an actual historical person and so much more than that. I, I picked up a National Geographic. The title on the cover was The Real Jesus. Of course, what they went on to present was not the real Jesus. We know him because he's revealed himself to us. Admonishing teaching everyone with all wisdom. And here it is. God said he will give us wisdom that is pure and undefiled if we lack it and ask him. So what would it look like for you to pray, for me to pray for this week, to have wisdom to know when the right opportunity to ask the right question comes up? We could be on mission and we could see God do amazing things and we will bear fruit that lasts. Let me pray for you. Father, I just want to thank you for Meadowbrook, for what you have done, for what you are doing, and what you will do in this place through these people. I pray for them as they gather for their meeting, even tomorrow evening. 
I pray for each one here this morning as we go into this week together. You're going to be at work because Jesus told us that you, the Father, are always at work. And so we have the privilege of joining you in that. Would you help us to be wise, to be discerning, to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within us so that you might be glorified and lives will be transformed, including our own. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have conquered the grave. We thank you that you love us despite our imperfections. Lord, that you let us serve you, you let us worship you. I thank you that you are worthy of our praise. God, I thank you for Ed, and I thank you for the ministry that you have entrusted him with. Lord, I ask that as they seek to honor you and as they seek to serve you, Lord, that you would bless Camp Crossroads, that you would bless the volunteers, the staff, the people there, the kids that come. Lord, that you would just be so deeply within that ministry. And Lord, we ask that as we leave this place this morning, um, that we would shine your light, Lord, that we would share your gospel because we are so excited and we are so grateful that you love us, that you sent your son to die for us. Lord, we just commit this church to you. We commit this time to you. And we ask for your blessing on this week as we leave.